Welcome to This Week in Tech with Gene Destro. Now is your chance to get caught up in all that's happening in technology around Akron and the rest of the world. Now here's your host, Gene Destro. This week, a fascinating conversation with Dr. Nick Chadva, who is a professor and acting head of the School of Engineering at Purdue University in Indiana. What makes it so fascinating is how he ties together high-tech concepts like 4D imaging with incredibly ancient engineering technology, not even practiced by humans, but by bees. And then he weaves all that together to paint a picture of how we may one day be able to build better, stronger, safer, less expensive, and more efficient structures from bridges to roller coasters. So let's get started first with an explanation of what exactly is 4D imaging. 4D imaging is actually 3D plus the fourth dimension. And so with X-ray microscopy and X-ray microtomography, what we're able to do is to visualize and image the structure of a material at a microscopic level, you know, finer than your hair, for example, in three dimensions. And that's similar to what you might have in a doctor's office when you get go a medical computer tomography scan or something like that, much higher resolution than what you probably get at the doctor's office. But we can then actually get the microstructure of any material, could be honeycomb, could be steel, could be composites, other things, in three dimensions, non-destructively. Now, when I apply a stimulus to that material, and it could be a mechanical stress, I could put it into a very corrosive environment, or in the case of the bees, we actually want to see them building this comb over time, that time evolution is the fourth dimension. That's the fourth D. And so that's really the power of the technique. Now we have the tools to be able to visualize, image the, the, the structure of the material non-destructively, but we can also now add the time dependence and to see how that structure is changing. How is it being affected by the environment, whether it be stress or temperature or something else? That's really cool. I mean, I could imagine that in the future, I'm not sure how, I'm sure it's pretty expensive right now, but wouldn't it be cool if you could just build this into your bridges, for example, or big high-rise buildings? Like I'm thinking about that building that just collapsed down in Florida, right? Just mm -hmm, mm -hmm. collapsed. And and they knew that over time something was going on with it, but nobody was really quantifying it. What if you had something like built into the beams that could just tell you, give you a readout of that over time? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a great point. And, you know, so monitoring is is another important application with, as you said, building structures and, and things like that. But it also really helps us to understand how materials behave in under those conditions. So the example you gave on, on the building structure, for example, we could take a piece of steel, a piece of concrete and put it under some very severe kind of conditions, could be stress, corrosion, cold temperatures, salt water, for example. The Navy is very interested in how their structures behave in a, in a, in a salt water environment. And we can then take that knowledge and build new materials, more resistant materials to stress and damage, for example. And I could think of that as being super useful as we go forward because really climate conditions are changing right now. And mm -hmm. so 
like in places, for example, out in the West where they've become increasingly more dry, when they built those structures, things were different. And they had been that way for hundreds of years and now they're kind of suddenly changing. And so it seems to me that that might change and inform the way you build new structures going forward because of changes in the environment. Absolutely. And, you know, the environment is something that we have a very hard time really quantifying what is really the important piece of that environment or how is that, as you said, that environment is changing over time. And so I think that's key. And that's that's the beauty of this technique is that we can change little pieces and we can change the stimulus that we're applying to the material. So we can do a lot of these things in real time now, both in the lab and also at what we call the synchrotron sources, where you have X-ray sources that have three to four times the flux that we could get in the lab. So let's go back to kind of the original topic uh, about that you looked at bees when they were making their honeycombs. And there was something about their process and the way that they built their honeycombs that caught your eye and gave you some useful insights into how their process might inform our process going forward with things we build. I wonder if you could tell mm -hmm. us about that. Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, this was actually a very interesting project, I think, from a lot of different points of view, not just the engineering point of view. My collaborator at the Purdue Bee Lab, he's interested in the social behavior of these bees and why they build their combs in a certain way and, and sort of from an evolutionary point of view, you know, how things have changed from species to species. What we were very interested in, in looking at is, for example, how do bees get to that hexagonal comb that is so characteristic of their structure. And, and there have been there are studies in the past that have shown that this is sort of the most equilibrium-based structure with a, that uses the least amount of, of material. But it turns out that it was a lot more than that. And what we didn't realize is that the bees don't just make these hexagonal cells. They actually are very intelligent about how they make the comb. And the first thing that they do is they actually build a spine, as we call it, it's almost like a corrugated fence that's actually built completely vertically. And then they actually start to build the combs as sort of a backing. So they use that spine as a substrate on which to sort of grow out, you know, horizontally and then to start to build the combs. And this is something that we would never have been able to see unless we had the 4D imaging capability. Because if I take a comb and I look at it, I have no idea how they got there. Is there something structurally about the form of a honeycomb, about that hexagonal structure? Is there something about it that makes it stronger or more resilient or better than, yeah. say, like we build our houses now with four walls and everything's pretty vertical and horizontal right. and pretty predictable? If we were to build things hexagonal like they do, would they be stronger? Would they be better? Yes, in, in many applications. So with the bees, they're actually making use of their resources and using them in the most effective way possible because they have to go out and get the pollen and scavenge for food. All of this stuff takes energy. And so the hexagonal structure is actually the best structure from a strength to weight ratio or strength to sort of mass kind of ratio, one of the best. And so we actually do use hexagonal structures in soles of some shoes or some other damage or impact resistant structures are all made up of hexagonal structures. 
But what's also interesting is that the bees actually use those combs for a lot of different usage. So they actually have their brood that's essentially raised there. You know, the queens put the eggs in there. And so in addition to actually having a structural use, and that's actually something we're trying to figure out too, is that you have something that's very light, almost paper-like, and it has amazing strength. You can store a huge amount of honey in there, and that comb is not going to, to rupture. Huh. So in the future, could we potentially use 3D printing to build like housing structures, like apartment buildings or a group of tiny homes using that hexagonal structure? And if we did, would it be better, more efficient than what we're using now? Yeah, Gene, I think that's an, a great point. And that's an area that we've started to sort of look into as well is is how do we bring 3D printing into this whole process? Uh, there are some examples now of folks using 3D printing on a much larger scale to build houses with 3D printing of concrete, for example. But the beauty of 3D printing is that you can, A, use the material, much as the bees do, where you need it. So, you know, oftentimes we think that one size fits all, but you could actually use the material where you need to have that material and where you don't need to have it, let's say in some your roof or some other place, which maybe is not as structurally critical, you could use less material. And so when we think about our world is changing with climate, you mentioned, but we're also changing in terms of resources and cost of building materials and, and, and cost of construction, we need to be smarter about how we use our resources. The bees already do that, and that's the beauty of it. Right, right. And uh, for people who probably aren't necessarily as up on this as you are, the study of that is called biomimicry. Mm -hmm. And and so is this new in using it in structural engineering? I mean, I know they use it in some other scientific disciplines. Is this new or is this kind of old hat to somebody like you? Well, I think biomimicry is, has been around for a while. I think probably the earliest example would be abalone shell. So if you look at the abalone shell, it's got a layered structure, it consists of very hard layers, but which are bonded by a very soft organic glue. And it turns out that when we have a crack in that hard layer, that soft organic matter makes the crack go in a different direction and it makes it expand more energy, <clears throat> which makes the abalone shell extremely tough. And so we were able, as a community, to learn lessons from that probably 15, 20 years ago. But I think that with the advent of these tools and being able to really understand the structure of these materials, and that structure can go for a variety of length scales, down to the atomic level, all the way down to, say, millimeters in size. And we have all these amazing tools and computation. Right. Well... The idea that maybe in the future we could, one, build stronger, more resilient, less expensive, and kind of less material intensive structures sounds pretty exciting to me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's absolutely exciting. And I think one of the parts that we haven't really talked about yet is the artificial intelligence and machine learning aspect of this. And so could we use machine learning or AI to help us come up with those structures, to help us understand using imaging, could we actually have the AI detect a crack or detect 
some damage before it gets to be too late, for example. Um, and then we can bring in 3D printing into this process and maybe the AI can guide us into structures that we can then test using a 3D printing capability. That sounds interesting. I just got done. My program this week was on ChatGPT and how mm -hmm. that is going to, one, inform education and two, challenge uh, mm -hmm. educators such as yourself. This is interesting, though, the idea that you could, let's say, have a monitor on, let's say, a beam on a bridge, right? And over time, you know there's going to be wear. But if you had one, this kind of imaging that you're talking about, and two, an artificial intelligence that was monitoring it, then maybe if a crack appeared somewhere like inside of a beam, you could just fix it or replace it, right? Right. It would tell us when we have that crack. And that is really a huge part of the battle, because if we can actually do this in a preventive way, the same thing goes with aircraft. We can inspect wings and use AI to tell us, hey, we have a, a large flaw here in your wing. You need to go and, and fix this. It's not really safe to fly. Those kinds of things, manually looking at those things would be way too laborious. But if we can have some kind of a sensor or something like that and have those images, the key really is to train the computer, to train the AI to really be able to think as, as humans do and say, okay, well, if we have an image and you get this kind of a feature, that is a crack and something else is maybe part of the concrete structure. So, you know, how to differentiate those two. It's very much like teaching a child new things, new lessons. Wow, that's really cool. I was also thinking about another application that might sound off the beaten track, but it's a pretty big deal here in Ohio, at least two big instances. And one, like about, I don't know, maybe five years ago, there was this really bad accident at the Ohio State Fair with one of their rides. And one person got killed and a bunch of other people got thrown out onto the midway. And, you know, there was a, a flaw in the arm mm -hmm. on this ride. Yeah. And then last year at another big amusement park in Ohio, somebody got really severely injured when this big part flew off of one of the rides. She was just standing there. And what they said was, well, when they disassembled this huge ride, this huge roller coaster, they found these cracks inside. And that was the same thing with the other one, right? It's like you look at it from the outside. And even if you had an inspector looking at it, there's no way that they would know what's going on inside the arm or inside the roller coaster track or whatever until something really bad happens. Yeah, yeah, no, I think inspection is key. Detection of these flaws that you referred to, even before they're put in service, is huge. I think another example that's key to the Midwest nowadays is with the, the semiconductor industry. Intel has a big plant in, in Ohio. Detecting flaws in the silicon wafers, for example, can be done using machine learning and imaging and so you could actually do this very quickly. But even large structural parts, hopefully, will be getting to that point soon. That was Dr. Nick Chadva, who is a professor and the acting head of the School of Engineering at Purdue University. And that's it for now. Stay happy and healthy, and we'll see you again next week. That was This Week in Tech with Gene Destro. 
tune in next week for more tech news on 93.5 1590 WAKR and WAKR.net.